This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Tonight we're going down to the heart of industry. We will hear from Richard Heinberg and Michael Lord about how difficult it will be to decarbonise some industries, such as steel and cement. Beyond Zero Emissions has pioneered the blueprints for Australia's electricity sector. We've also shown how transport, agriculture and buildings can have zero emissions. But it's a devilish problem to decarbonise some industrial processes. And so that's our next project. That's what we're taking on. Meanwhile, getting coal and gas-fired power off the scene is still a battle. So we'll go first to a rally, one icy Melbourne morning, outside 120 Collins Street, where Mitsui has its office. They co-own Hazelwood, Hazelwood Power Station with the French company NG. Adam Bant from the Greens said, We have a special responsibility in Melbourne to start the domino effect to make this dirtiest coal-fired power station tumble and the other dominoes around Australia will then have to fall. So here's Adam Bant. So that in Australia we become a zero pollution society within the next couple of decades. That is Australia doing its fair share as part of a global effort to make sure that the world that we leave for our kids and our grandkids isn't a world that's afflicted by dangerous runaway climate change. We're already seeing the effects of global warming now, and we run the risk, unless we get global warming under control, of going to every second Christmas in Victoria wondering when the next big Black Saturday-style bushfire is going to hit, or how many people are going to die from the heat wave that will... Uh, what, hit across southern uh, Australia. We know already that parts of Western Australia have had their rainfall patterns permanently affected and they're drier um, now, permanently drier than they used to be when, uh, when kids were growing up in Western Australia before. And we know that unless we get global warming under control, our bushfire season is going to become longer. Uh, and we know that the extreme weather events that we have, like cyclones and floods, when they come, they're going to be more intense. And where we need to start in Australia is with the way that we generate our power. I get to meet a number of pretty good people in this job, and one of them was the climate advisor to the G8 and to Angela Merkel in Germany, and who said, um, you'll have to imagine the German accent, I'm not going to do it, you can imagine it, but who said, look, we Europeans look at you in Australia and we scratch our heads. And we look at you in Australia with your abundant wind, your sun, your tides, you're surrounded by water. And we wonder, we look at your smarts, the intellectual capacity that we've got, and we look at your advanced manufacturing capacity, and we wonder why is it Germany and Europe that is left to lead the world in the generation of clean energy? Why isn't Australia a renewable energy superpower? And that's the opportunity that we've got. And what we've got here in Australia is an outdated energy system that's essentially a series of copper and aluminium lines out into coal mines. Now, we have that not because a bunch of people sat around and decided how can we wreck the planet and wreck Australia. It was just, at the time, the way that they thought that you could power a society. But it turns out that powering a society by burning fossil fuels and by burning coal comes at a huge cost. It comes at a huge cost, and we know that now. 
And so we've got all the knowledge that we need to get rid of coal and get onto clean energy and support the workers in that transition. We can no longer plead ignorance and we haven't been able to plead ignorance for some time. And that's why it's so crucial. That's why it's so crucial that we come out and send a message to the companies that are making money from burning coal that it is immoral. It is immoral to continue to make a profit out of something that will destroy the planet and wreck the way of life that we want to so desperately preserve here in Australia. And just as people like you got together to say we need to end the use of asbestos in this country because there was a time when people thought that we could use asbestos safely and then we found out that you couldn't. And just as people like you came together and said it is time to end the use of and the peddling of tobacco because we now know that tobacco kills people. Now coal is the next asbestos. Coal is the next tobacco. And it is time that the companies that make a profit out of it got out of that business and started making their money out of something that does not kill people and that does not damage our way of life. And that is why it's so crucial. That's why it's so crucial that we step up the fight now. We step up the fight to divest from fossil fuels and we step up the fight to call on customers of simple, simply energy to say there are ways of powering your house that don't involve burning fossil fuels. And that is the message that we need to get out for the next little while. Because if we get that message out, then the people who are the co-owners of Hazelwood will realise why one part of them is saying it's time to get out of coal and will say, well, let's join with that and let's do the same. And once we close the country's dirtiest power station, once we have Hazelwood closed because it is the country's most polluting power station, we need to make the switch to clean energy, it will be the first domino that falls and they will start closing right around this country. And we've got a very special responsibility here in Melbourne and in Victoria because if we can close the dirtiest power station here, we will light a spark for the campaigns right across the country and we will give hope and inspiration to everyone who is campaigning to stop coal exports in New South Wales or in Queensland. Everyone who is trying over in Western Australia to get their state powered by clean energy. We have the opportunity to really, really lead the country and make the rest of 2016 the year that they said that is when the first domino started to fall and that is when Australia really started making the switch away from coal to renewable energy. So I'm really, really excited about this and we know, we know, um, or we're told anyway, and we hope it's true, that over the next month or so the board is going to meet to discuss the future of Hazelwood. And if coming out of that meeting or coming out of the meeting after, coming out of the meeting after that, they say it is time to close down Hazelwood and look after the workers and the community, then we will have the wind behind us and we will have our tails up and we will know, we will know that we have begun the campaign to make Australia a renewable energy superpower and it will be worth standing out here on all these cold mornings because we will have begun to make the kind of change that we so desperately need to see here in Australia. So thank you so much for coming out and let's replace Hazelwood with clean energy. Ellen Sandell, who is a Greens member in the Victorian Parliament, was the MC for this morning's uh, protest meeting outside Mitsui. First, she introduces Kat from Environment Victoria, followed by Colin Long from the NTEU and Tom Doig, who's an author. This campaign is not new. We have been campaigning to replace Hazelwood for over a decade now. Ever since the Labor government in 2005 renewed Hazelwood's licence for another several decades. But we are winning now. We saw just a couple of days ago, Engie announced that they will not be um, the recipient of a loan from ANZ that they wanted to see renewed. Uh, thanks to the great pressure of community members who called ANZ, who emailed them and said that they were going to do their best if they kept lending to Hazelwood. So we've already had a win in the last couple of days. And a lot of that was thanks to the great work of Environment Victoria who've been leading this campaign for years and years and years. I'd like to introduce Kat from Environment Victoria and say a few words. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, 
coming out on this very cold morning. Uh, as you know, Environment Victoria and many of the people here today have been talking about the need to phase out Hazelwood for a very long time. Um, we've known for a long time that uh, with an emission intensity that is 50% uh, higher than the global average, that Hazelwood is the dirtiest power station in Australia and most likely in the world. Hazelwood's been polluting our air and endangering our climate for over 50 years. When it was built in the 1960s, the engineers that built it thought it was going to close in the 90s. But its life got extended. In 2005, it got another reprieve. If we're going to seriously head down the path of stopping global warming, it cannot get another extension. It has to be retired immediately. As, as has been emphasised already, uh, global warming has never been more serious. 2016 will be the hottest year on record. It will be the last one, which will be 2015. Every month for the last 14 months has shattered global temperature records. We heard last week that because of abnormally high temperatures in northern Russia, that an, an unusual time of year anthrax outbreak killed an 11-year-old boy and hospitalised 72 other people. Climate change is already taking lives. Just like the Hazelwood mine fire took lives in 2014 when it burned for 45 days. As Adam said, coal has lost its social licence. And businesses and politicians and people across the country are realising that. Um, thanks, Ellen, for mentioning. Um, earlier this year, uh, Environment Victoria supporters contacted ANZ Bank uh, to say that it would be completely immoral and out of step with their own climate change policies to renew a US $147 billion loan to the power station. People wrote to the bank, they called the bank, hundreds of people even uh, threatened and some actually did divest of their bank account. Uh, and the bank listened. And we heard uh, just last month that, or just last week, sorry, that NG had to stump up the money themselves and finance it internally. And what that says to me is that we are winning. The people are hearing our message that it's, that it's the time for coal has finished and that we must urgently start the transition to renewable energy. And that will mean big changes for our friends in Latrobe Valley and we have to support that community as they transition. Uh, but all of you are here today to say that the transition to clean energy starts right now. So thank you all for being here and let's hope that this is the last time we have to gather together to talk about replacing Hazelwood. <laughs> 2014, wreaking havoc across the Latrobe Valley, killing people and leading to the eventual evacuation of Morwell and ongoing health impacts. We know that Hazelwood is having a devastating impact on the Latrobe Valley community, but we also know there can be a really bright future for this community if governments and the companies come together and actually put in place a plan to transition to renewable energy. And there are already people working on plans for new jobs and new industries in the valley that can replace the jobs that will be lost in Hazelwood. One of these people is Colin Long. He's from the National Tertiary Education Union, but also a group called Earthworker that's working on new jobs in the valley, and he's here to talk to us today. One really, amongst many really big lies that have told about the coal and fossil fuel industry is that it's an industry that protects jobs, that provides jobs and provides uh, welfare for workers. This is one of the biggest lies. If you look at the power industry, during the 1990s when it was privatised in the Latrobe Valley, thousands upon thousands of jobs were lost and the companies didn't give a shit about the workers that it sacked and the damage it did to the uh, Latrobe Valley communities down there. The reality is that at some point, when it suits them, the power companies will pull out of the power stations in the valley. Unfortunately, it will be too late to deal with climate change, but it will do damage to the communities and the workers down there. So what we need, in fact, is a transition now, because if we don't start now, it will be too late and when, if the companies are allowed, if the companies are allowed to do a transition on their own terms, they will not give one hoot about the workers or the communities down here. 
So the important thing now is for the state government, if it really believes in the futures of workers, if it really believes in the future of the Gippsland communities, it's up to the government now to start making a plan to replace Hazelwood and the other power stations in the valley with clean renewable energy which will generate far more jobs than now exist in the electricity generation industry in the Latrobe Valley. It is outrageous that our governments of all stripes in Australia, from the federal on down to the state level, seem to think that what is most important role for them at the moment is to protect dying industries. Well, they're selective in their protection of dying industries, of course, but it would be something like the government saying in the early 1990s, this internet's a very interesting thing, but I think we've got to protect the fax industry. It's incredibly <laughs> important to protect the fax industry. We just don't know where this, uh, this internet industry is going to go. We don't know where that's going to end up. And that's what's happening, especially at a federal level in Australia, and that's uh, leaving us economically exposed and leaving us to be exposed to falling behind the rest of the world in the development to a new economy, a new sustainable economy. The other thing I have to say about uh, the welfare of workers when it comes to the, the uh, coal industry in particular, there are more workers now losing their jobs in the coal industry, especially in the mining states, from just technological replacement than from any other action. And again, the companies don't care. It's not about jobs when it suits them, they just lay the workers off. There, are no, there is no growth in coal mining in terms of employment. The only growth we're likely to see in, in, in relation to power generation is if we move to renewables and remove and move there quickly. Earthworker is, uh, Ellen mentioned, Earthworker is a workers' cooperative we've been trying to establish for a long time in Trade Valley. We now move our equipment that we own to, to manufacture solar hot water tanks down to the valley. We're now waiting on the state government. We've called on the state government to help us get that factory established and providing jobs in the valley by putting uh, solar hot water systems on public housing in Victoria. Now that's a great opportunity, win-win for everyone. Low-income tenants get to reduce some of their household costs. We get to establish one of the first, hopefully, factories making renewable energy technologies. And we do it in the valley to provide good jobs, good unionised jobs for peak workers who are displaced from the power stations like Hazelwood, which simply have to close. I'll finish by just one other anecdote, just to show you where workers in the rest of the world, where they stand and what they face in relation to coal uh, production. There's a big American company, I can't remember the name, maybe Peabody, one of those big, big coal producers in the US. And its pension plan, superannuation plan, the members of that plan are now suing their pension plan because that pension plan has been invested in their own company because their own company is a coal coal mining company. And the value of their pensions has gone down so badly because of the collapse of the value of that company that their pensions have been badly affected. And they argue that the directors of that comp of the pension plan should have known that there's no future in coal because there is no future in coal. Thank you. Down in the valley during the terrible Hazelwood mine fire, he saw firsthand the devastation that it wreaked on the local community and spent a lot of time talking to locals about what the fire and what Hazelwood means to them. He's here to speak to us today. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks for all you for coming out on this effing freezing morning. Um, yeah, like Alan said, uh, I'm a writer, I'm, I'm a journalist at Monash. I've written a short book called um, The Coal Face about the mine fire. Um, Oh, I'll speak up! Um, yeah, so I've been spending a lot of time in Hazelwood and I've seen firsthand the damage um, that a badly maintained and poorly operated coal mine has done. Um, dozens of people have died already um, in the Latrobe Valley from the fire. That's on top of the dozens of people that die every year just from pollution. So this is how terrible coal is just on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, Everyone in the valley knows that Hazelwood is going to close, and they know it's going to close any day now. Um, the Hazelwood mine fire, as, as um, Adam said, has taken away coal's social licence. Um, I talked to some, some emergency services workers uh, on Tuesday who got laid off um, very unceremoniously 
they told me that there are rumours going around that four out of eight of the turbines will be closed by Christmas. Who knows? But, like, the writing is on the wall. Um, and, and these kind of protests are so important to put pressure uh, on the corporate overlords to close this stuff as soon as possible. Um, but it's also really important to remember that this isn't just an environmental issue. It is a very important climate change issue. It is an important environmental issue. It is also a social justice issue, and we can't lose sight of how tough people are doing it in the Latrobe Valley. So, like, Australia has a dirty energy problem, and it needs a clean energy solution. The Latrobe Valley has an unemployment problem, and it needs an employment solution. It's really important to keep track of that. There is no love. There is no love for energy groups down there. Everyone in the Latrobe Valley knows that they're a pack of wankers who don't care about anything but the bottom line. The workers know that more than any, anything. Um, but there's also, unfortunately, in the Latrobe Valley, not a lot of love for greenies. Because the greenies want to take away... Well, that, the perception is the greenies want to take away the jobs. And the problem is, all that the libs and the nats have to do is keep their mouths shut and keep talking about business as usual, and the messenger gets shot. That's what goes on, you know? If this footage makes it on the news, people in the Trove Valley, they're going to say, fucking greenies, they want to steal our jobs. This is bullshit, right? But it's, it's really up to us to, like, step up with the transition plan that's real and meaningful and more than just words. Because no one else has a plan. The Liberals don't have a plan. The Nats don't have a plan. If the Greens can have a plan, if the progressive people in Australia can have a plan, the alliances down there will shift, and, and it'll be win-win for everyone. Um, but, you know, as long as we can take this seriously and, you know, look at those coal workers, they're not enemies. They're, you know, they're people who are getting what jobs are available for them. And they know the job's going to go any second now. Um, but, yeah, it is... It's like um, Colin said, you know, it's like the facts industry is dying. <laughs> the coal industry is dying. Um, and, you know, the writing is on the wall. The wall is made of asbestos and the wall is crumbling. And let's hasten its end as soon as possible. Thanks for coming out. And called Renew Australia, which talks about how we can move our energy to renewable energy. It has significant funds in there for building renewable energy and other industries in places that will be affected by the decline of the coal industry and significant funds to transition workers and communities who are affected. Tom is absolutely right. We cannot lose sight of the communities who are going to be affected by this closure and we cannot lose sight of all the communities around the world who are affected by climate change right now and who need Hazelwood to be phased out. We need all ground coal and all coal around the world to be phased out to move to renewable energy if we are have to have any hope of saving us from dangerous climate change. Later in the week, I went to Northcote Town Hall and saw a marvellous performance called Creating a Climate for Change. Many of the performances there were songs responding to stories told by the audience about their anxieties around climate change. And one of the anxieties was about being left behind, that the workers will be left behind in the coal-affected communities. So we're going to hear a song from the uh, Melbourne Playback Theatre, followed by a small interview I did with Lorraine Ball from Norwell, who's been a great activist on behalf of that community. And she talks about not leaving the workers behind. to a lady from Morwell, Lorraine Ball, who's perhaps known to you listeners. Lorraine made a very interesting comment here about the future work for the Latrobe Valley. Thank you, Lorraine. What do you think? Um, as far as work in Latrobe Valley goes, 
Um, at the moment we are underemployed and as this transition away from coal happens, we need to create new industries. We cannot rely on uh, having wind towers all through the valley. We don't get enough wind. Um, our solar reserves aren't equal to what you would find in um, Mildura or up in the northern area of Victoria. So we need to create new industries and they could be a huge diversity. Um, it may be in manufacturing um, batteries or the earthworker project where you get solar hot water systems. They are planning to open a factory in Morwell very shortly. Yeah. But um, there are... It's up to the community to try and stimulate economic activity so that we can employ people who are leaving the coal industry and who are reliant, um, the businesses that are reliant on the income that the families earn there so that we can still have a strong and diverse and happy community existing in the Latrobe Valley. That's right. They say for every miner that loses his job, there's a hairdresser, there's a school teacher and, and that. It's that flow-on effect, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it's not only the, the small businesses, it's the bigger businesses, it's the schools, um, it's the health services and the hospital. Okay, well, we were at the Playback Theatre tonight and they sang a song about Don't Leave Us Behind. Is that generally the feeling? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we really need to be ahead of the pack in creating the new industry before the coal power stations start to close down. Okay, you've mentioned some of the businesses. Where do you think the real leadership's coming from? Uh, the leadership is coming um, partially from the council. Um, some business groups are making many suggestions, though some of it's business as usual. But a lot of activity is coming from the community itself. Okay, well, thank you very much. That was Lorraine Bull, who's very active in the Morewell area. Well, if you listen to three oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three oh, I so know where you are. If you listen to three oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three oh, clap your hands. Well, check out the happy vibe. It's gonna ring up and subscribe. If you listen to three oh, clap your hands. What? Who the hell is that? Flap your ears! What are you talking about? I ain't no elephant. Get out of here. This is handmade radio. Flap your ears! Get the hell out of here now. Next up, we've got a man called Richard Heinberg, who comes to us courtesy of ABC Rural Radio, where this was first aired. Richard is with the Post Carbon Institute, and he talks about just how difficult it is going to be to decarbonise some industries, such as aviation, cement and steel. However, I just want to throw in a Tim Flannery statistic at this point. He reckons, if we are to believe him, that 300 coal mines uh, around the world need to be shut down immediately if we are to have any hope whatsoever of reaching a two-degree Paris target. Here's Richard Heinberg. It's not just a question of building a lot of solar panels and wind turbines. It's not just a supply-side problem. It's also a question of a demand side. We have built massive infrastructure around the world, especially in industrialized countries, to use energy in specific ways, in transportation, in industrial processes, in agriculture. And most of that energy usage is not in the form of electricity. Most of it is liquid fuels or using coal or natural gas directly for heating buildings uh, and so on. So the renewable energy revolution is going to require more than just a lot of solar panels and wind turbines. It's going to require the replacement of a lot of that energy usage infrastructure. Uh, government leadership is going to be required to drive the electrification of many industrial uses of energy to uh, raise building standards to require much higher levels of energy efficiency in heating, air conditioning, uh, water heating, and, and so on. Uh, and in transportation, we're going to need uh, a tremendous amount of research and development in replacing liquid fuels, not only for automobiles, but also uh, trucking, 
in uh, aviation and also in shipping. These are going to be very difficult uh, industries to transition. What would a different type of fuel for transportation or agriculture or aviation, what would that actually look like? What would it be? Well, there have been suggestions with regard to aviation uh, for using uh, hydrogen, uh, possibly supercooled hydrogen, or sophisticated biofuels. Uh, we looked at those prospects, and it appears to us that while it's probably technically possible, we're a very long way from being able to use those alternative fuels on a large scale. In fact, we don't see an, an, an easy route without some kind of technical breakthrough. Uh, we see global aviation as probably shrinking in size as we transition to renewable energy. Uh, to do something like supercool hydrogen, isn't that of itself going to require an enormous amount of energy that the argument sort of goes can't be supplied by renewables? Well, it, in theory, it can be supplied by renewables, but you know we're asking solar and wind to do a great deal. Currently, we only can uh, use about 20% of global energy in the form of electricity. Uh, and, of course, solar and wind produce electricity directly. They, this is going to be a, a, an enormous ongoing challenge, uh, for example, in uh, industrial processes like making cement. Cement, of course, is the, the key ingredient in concrete, and concrete, in turn, is the, the foundation, if you will, of modern industrial civilization. Cities are, are built of the stuff. Well, cement is made in an industrial process that occurs at about uh, 1,500 degrees Celsius uh, using very large amounts of uh, either coal or sometimes natural gas. Uh, transitioning that process to uh, renewable energy may be possible in theory. And again, we're asking solar and wind to do a great deal, not just to replace coal and natural gas in current electricity production, but also to replace oil, coal, and gas for all of these other applications in buildings, industrial processes, and transportation. Where do batteries play into it? Are you talking about energy that's produced or energy that's stored and used? Well, storage is going to play an increasingly important role in our renewable energy systems. Initially, as solar and wind make up only a very small proportion of the total energy that we use, excuse me, we can offset the intermittency of solar and wind power with existing capacity from other energy sources. So, for example, if, uh, if the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, we can fire up a natural gas power plant to make up the difference. But as solar and wind come to dominate the electricity generation sector, then we have a problem on our hands that we have to solve one way or another. Either we have to store electricity in batteries or as hydrogen or by pumping water uphill into reservoirs so that we can let it flow back downhill and capture the energy in, in turbines. Or we have to have a lot of redundant generation capacity, so we have to build lots more solar panels and wind turbines all over the place than we actually need at any one given moment. Or we have to change our demand patterns so that we're using electricity more when it's abundant rather than just whenever we, we choose to use it. Are batteries at the stage now where they are able to store and do quite a lot of work? Well, batteries are uh, inherently expensive and, uh, and inefficient. They're getting better and they're getting cheaper. Batteries may be practical for home energy storage, but larger vehicles are problematic and for grid-scale storage, batteries are expensive and probably always will be relatively expensive as compared to pumped water storage and perhaps even hydrogen. There seems to be a widespread belief, though, around batteries that they're right on the cusp of breakthrough technology that would make them 
um, affordable and applicable to larger scale um, industrial or home use. Are we not almost there? Yes, there are technical breakthroughs that have have occurred just in the last couple of years and more are on their way. Nevertheless, uh, even with the best theoretical battery storage, um, batteries don't measure up to some of the other options. If we're going to move the energy transition, the renewable energy transition beyond the electricity sector, we have to start looking at those applications now. If you're not absolutely furious, you're really not paying enough attention. The world's a shambles. So come along and join us in being active, and together we can make this world a more ethical place to live. And in that last piece, we heard from Richard Heinberg from the Post Carbon Institute. It might, might be worth Googling that to get a different perspective on our upcoming energy sources. Lastly tonight, Vivian speaks to the, the incoming CEO, the new income CEO, CEO for Beyond Zero Emissions. Stephen Bygrave is gracefully exiting as we speak and Michael Lord is the, uh, the new CEO. And I commend you to their website, bze.org.au. But first up, let's hear from Michael Lord talking to Viv. Good evening, everybody. I'm at Beyond Zero Emissions at Kindness House today, and I'm interviewing Michael Lord, who is managing a new project for Beyond Zero Emissions on industrial processes. So welcome, Michael. Thanks, Vivian. Look, if we look at the global picture, how much do industrial processes contribute in terms of emissions? Uh, it's interesting because industrial processes are perhaps one the forgotten area of emissions. In terms of energy, about a third of global energy requirements are for industrial processes. So that's the manufacture of you know things that we use every day but don't necessarily think about, like metals, uh, like steel and aluminium, cement, plastics, chemicals, polymers, a whole range of things. So it's about a third of global energy, and in terms of uh, emissions, it's really probably a little bit less, but not much less than electricity, which gets spoken about a lot more. Why don't we hear more about this? Is it too hard? Is it because it's in the too hard basket? (laughs) I think it is partly because it's in the too hard basket. I think it's partly because industry is less visible to most people. So most people don't have um, cement and steel, for example, on their shopping lists, even though it's, you know, an integral part of all our lives now. But it is is also because it's it's very difficult to tackle. Uh, A lot of industrial emissions are related to the, the need for very high temperatures and those high temperatures are reached by burning yeah, either coal or gas usually. To find an alternative for that is difficult, um, not impossible and that's what we want to show. And some of the other emissions come from process emissions, so the actual reactions going on, so cement is the big one for that. Half of the emissions from cement come from the process emissions, from the reactions required to, to produce cement uh, and those are really unavoidable unless you make cement in another way, which is what we want to look at. Could our present industries be fuelled by um, solar and wind power admitting a large amount of storage, you know, large-scale solar with molten salt storage, for example, and wind power with storage? Could our present industries be fuelled by renewables? Yeah, that's one of the things we want to look into, and we're only at the start of this research project, so we don't have all the answers yet. But in terms of the heat, one of the things that we want to look at is uh, using concentrated solar thermal, which has been a beyond zero emissions interest for a long time, not not necessarily to produce the electricity, but to produce the heat required for uh, chemical processes. And that's an area that's just starting to get interest at the moment. But it is already used um, uh, in industry uh, 
in an industry that we don't support, the oil and gas industry, but uh, they have a requirement for steam, uh, and in the Middle East they have large-scale concentrated solar thermal uh, that's used for that. In terms of, uh, obviously, the electricity requirements of industry, uh, we would want replaced by renewables, and we've already shown in our stationary energy plan, and I think everybody knows we can now get to a renewable uh, electricity supply. But one interesting area where we're probably going to look at in the report is uh, the use of hydrogen um, in steel making. So there's a there's a way you can by using hydrogen you can avoid some of the emissions. And hi- hydrogen is very energy intensive to make, but it doesn't matter when you make it. So it, it, the one possibility um, we're going to look at is is using uh, the excess renewable electricity. You know the gener- when it's generated at times beyond the requirements that excess which at the moment would be wasted could be used to generate Mm -hmm. hydrogen uh, and one of the uses for that hydrogen could be in steel manufacture. Maybe for the listeners I'm sure the listeners are better informed than me but I just don't know how concrete is made and I don't know how steel is made really and I remember reading the book by George Monbiot Mm. called Heat and that's quite a few years ago now and and he went through every sector of the economy but he Mm. came to cement and he said that's really there's no alternative so could you tell us how cement is made nowadays yeah. and perhaps what you think the alternative might be now yeah and i've heard that a few times that there's no uh, alternative to um, uh, to cement and if you make it in the way we make it now there really is no alternative to uh, at least the process emissions that it produces so the way cement is made um you know very briefly is that the, the main raw material is limestone and limestone is calcium carbonate and the reaction that occurs in making the cement releases the ca- carbon dioxide from uh, the limestone, and then you, you're 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 left with a with lime uh, and other ingredients. And the, the property of cement, which makes it fantastic and so useful, is it binds together. Once you mix it with water, it binds together sand and aggregates and creates this, you know, material like stone, but better than stone because you can shape it and actually is stronger and has great compressive strength. The way will be, you can actually avoid those emissions by making cement in another way. Mm-hmm. And and there's a there's a, a company in Victoria actually called Zeobond uh, that makes the cement in this other way, and it's called geopolymer cement. Uh, and they use entirely different raw materials. Um, one drawback of it is that one of those raw materials is fly ash, which is a waste product of coal-fired power stations. So it's it's a it's a great invention, and geopolymer uh, cement has all all the properties that you would want from uh, the cement we have at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the long term, we need to find an alternative yeah. uh, raw material because we don't want coal-fired power stations so we won't have fly ash from coal-fired power stations. Well, we're always talking about transition gas. I don't know why we can't have transition cement. <laughs> yes, I, I think we need to start talking about transition cement, but transitioning very quickly um, to other types of cement. And, in, 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 you know, um, uh, researchers have also developed zero-carbon and carbon-negative cements and we haven't really started looking into this about how feasible it is and how far from commercialization it is. But with carbon negative cements, um, the, the chemical reaction that goes on actually absorbs carbon dioxide when you're making the cement. Mm. And even when it's become concrete, it continues to absorb uh, lower, lower amounts of carbon dioxide. And that is making the concrete stronger as that as that happens. So it's a it's it's a win win situation. But um, I'm 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 not sure at the moment how close we are to commercialisation of that. But it's got great potential. Okay. Well, what about steel? I know we get a lot of the iron ore out in the desert. It seems there's a lot of solar power out there. If you only built the solar yeah. plant, uh, is there some way of making steel near where the iron ore is mined? I think that's a really good idea. Um, at the moment, Australia, is, as you just said, it has all this iron ore. It, we dig it out of the ground, and we send most of it to China for them to make into steel. A little bit of steel is made here. But the locations of that oil mine are also in a perfect location for um, concentrated solar thermal. So that's one of the things we want to look at. 
the, the, the manufacture. The whole, the whole aim of this report is to show how Australia could actually produce more of these products but produce them in a low-carbon way. So we, we, the, the, what we want to explore is using concentrated telethermal close to the site of the iron ore mm. to make the steel, which seems to make a lot of sense. Yes, I mean, we had a previous report called uh, Renewable Energy Superpower. Yeah. What do you think of that? I mean, are there, super, like, are there things that we could actually do on, in, in our country that would, in fact, make us a leader in this, be very lucrative and therefore appealing to governments to um, invest in? I think there's a great opportunity now to become leaders in low-carbon industry. And as, as we were saying, it's an area that's been neglected uh, in terms of uh, its contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. But we need to start paying attention to it because it's such a major contributor and we need to move very quickly as a planet to zero emissions. We need to start paying attention to, to industry and there, there isn't really enough yet but there's an opportunity for an Australia with our huge as uh, with our huge renewable resources because we've got some of the raw materials like iron ore there's a great opportunity to be a leader in that but it needs it needs research and it needs uh, investment uh, it needs uh, industry and government and researchers to come together uh, and start exploring low carbon industry and other countries are already starting so we're probably, all, you know, we need to start soon so we don't, you know, lose out to other countries. So, for example, in Sweden, uh, they're building a demonstration plant. Sweden has a, a steel industry and they're building a demonstration plant. Uh, they announced it in April, which will make steel using hydrogen in a zero carbon way. So other countries are already starting to do it. Do it. Australia needs to start quickly. Well, that's right. Well, you're only at the very beginning of your research, aren't you? And we advertised on the radio just last week that you were getting wanting volunteers, people with expertise in this sort of field. Can you tell us a bit more about Australian companies who you might be looking into who are doing some research into a more carbon-efficient process with their product or using different materials? Well, one of, uh, one of the ones that uh, will definitely be included in the report is Zeobond, who I mentioned earlier. So we're lucky to have here in Victoria one of the one of the uh, foremost producers of geopolymer cement, uh, and they've been working on that. The CEO of uh, Zeobond has been working on it for more than 25 years. Was that steel? Are you, um, yeah. Blue Scope Steel? Yeah, so we, we've spoken. There are only two manufacturers of uh, steel left in Australia, mm. um, One Steel and Blue Scope. We've spoken. Both of them uh, have have looked into lower carbon ways of making steel. So, so Blue Scope have investigated uh, the use of biomass. So you can replace the coke um, that is normally used in a blast furnace to make steel mm-hmm. with biomass. Uh, and from, from what I've heard from Blue Scope, those trials were successful, but they need a carbon price to make it, uh, to make it viable, at least in the short term. What about biomass? Because I've always understood that there'll be a great competition for biomass eventually. You know, if that's the standby thing, well, you know, there's just not enough biomass to go around all the people who will be wanting it. Uh, I don't think Australia needs to use biomass for transport or electricity. Maybe steel is a sector where it could use it. But um, it's, not the, it's, not, it's not our only option. As we mm-hmm. said, we've got hydrogen ways of producing steel which are which are low carbon and in the in the long run we could produce steel with electrolysis uh, which is how most metals like aluminium uh, are produced but uh, nobody's doing that yet and you do need a lot of electricity. Well coming back to the beginning you told us that one third of the global emissions are from industrial processes you've mentioned Sweden could you just mention just globally what you think the most exciting leads are in this world? I mean, presumably most big industrial countries will be trying to reduce their emissions. Yes, uh, the Swedish project is one. There are, there are companies looking into uh, carbon mineralisation. So uh, listeners may have heard of carbon capture and storage where you, you siphon off the carbon dioxide um, from a process and, and store it. But then you need to be next to a site somewhere where you can, mm. you know, store the carbon dioxide over very long periods of time. Something some companies are looking into is how you can mineralize it at the site, which means you react the carbon dioxide with 
certain types of rock and then they're locked away permanently because the, the carbon dioxide has become part of the rock. Mm. And there's a company in the uh, United States uh, which has started implementing this at, uh, at, at Cement Works. Mm. But to be honest, uh, so far we haven't uncovered too much commercialization of very low-carbon industries of the type we're talking about because it's just not, you know, cost is everything. At the moment, we're stuck with high-carbon ways of producing these products. And that's one reason why we're writing this report, to get things moving, Mm. because they really do need to start moving in this area. Would you like to tell us how Beyond Zero Emissions uses um, experts and volunteers to cluster the knowledge around a report like this? Because I'm sure the gestation of this report is quite vast, and then you have to coordinate it. How did the... In previous reports, we've had marvellous help from volunteers from all sorts of places and it's a bit like going to Bletchley Park sometimes coming in here with all these boffins talking about things that are way over my head in a way because they're specialised but I think that creates a creative energy around a report. Could you just tell the listeners how that goes and also if you'd like to invite people tell them what's required. Yeah, it's fantastic the way we produce our reports because we, we, usually, um, we usually do it on a shoestring yeah. and a lot of the research is done by volunteers. You know, it's, uh, I'll be coordinating it and steering it, but a lot of the legwork uh, is done by volunteers. So um, we've had interns from Monash University, so engineering students are looking at some of these areas and they, they record their research on a website. So we've got a sort of intranet Wikipedia for this, mm-hmm. for this project. Uh, we've got academics, we've got people from industry, um, we've got uh, practicing engineers, materials engineers, chemicals engineers. It's absolutely fantastic how uh, willing people are to devote their time to this and how they're enthused uh, by making a difference and making the big change that we need to see. Mm. So, you know, not everybody is interested in industrial materials and industrial processes, so I want the report to be really colourful, have great graphics. Um, so we're, we're looking for web designers and graphic designers and who can help us um, give the report a really powerful impact. Okay. Lastly, just, Michael, tell us a little bit about yourself. What was your path to get into this work? Oh, what was my power? I wasn't expecting to talk about myself. Um, I've been working in climate change for about 10 years. So I've only been at Beyond Zero Emissions for four months. Mm. Um, Before that, uh, I was a a climate change consultant for a couple of years in Australia. And before that, I worked in the climate change team at the uh, Environment Agency in the UK. And the Environment Agency is the big environmental regulator, but does does a lot of things to do with the environment and had a climate change team. I worked with infrastructure companies uh, in the UK to encourage and support and sort of hassle them <laughs> to take more action on climate change. And before I got into uh, climate change, I actually worked in IT. So I was a a programmer and a project manager. I was just really concerned about climate change and uh, wanted to do whatever I can to uh, work in this area and do something to, you know, make the changes that we need to make. And that's what I'm still trying to do now. Okay, well, I think this report might be a catalyst for quite a few things. Yeah, I really hope so. Thanks very much. So that was Michael Lord at Beyond Zero Emissions. That brings us to an end of, for the show tonight. That last speaker was Michael Lord from BZE. And we say farewell to Stephen Bygrave, our outgoing CEO. At the top of the show, we had a Hazel, uh, a Hazelwood uh, special with guests like Adam Bant from the Greens Party, Alan Sandor from Environment Victoria, Colin Long from NTEU, Tom Doig from the, who is the author of Coalface, and we've had on the show before, and uh, Lorraine Bull from Morwell. Then we had Richard Heinberg, courtesy of ABC Radio, from the Post Carbon Institute, and finally, as you heard, Michael Lord.